Welcome to the Limited Slip Podcast in-depth discussion, a weekly hour-long podcast where we go deep down into automotive news and car culture topics. Your hosts are me, Dave, an attorney and car importer, and Borja, the mechanic extraordinaire. This week, we discuss Mercedes-Benz's electric model lineup, a Group B race car collection that's for sale, how ceramic coatings can save classic cars, how Verstappen could have been F1 world champ, how the Ferrari SF90 is not Italian enough, and part two of our super SUV feature, why super SUVs are the best performance cars. Buckle up, we've got a lot to cover. This is Dave and Borja on this week's Limited Slip Podcast. This episode of the Limited Slip Podcast is brought to you by Retromobile Designs. If you are looking for auto and racing themed t-shirts that look cool to the average show, but get an approving nod from other gearheads, check them out at retromobiledesigns.com. That's retromobiledesigns.com. So welcome back. We are going to talk now about Mercedes-Benz's electric model lineup. So we've talked before about Maserati's future electric vehicle lineup and how they're they're building their cars on the same chassis as their internal combustion and their hybrid powered vehicles. And Mercedes Benz is basically taking the exact opposite path. So they're, they're developing proprietary, unique platforms for their electric cars. Now they're going to brand them this, their, their electric vehicles are going to brand as EQ. So they've, they've confirmed a, B, C, E, and S series sized uh, EQ models. And the naming convention is, is interesting because it's simple and it actually makes sense. So their A-class size electric vehicle is just going to be called EQA. Their B-sized one, the EQB, C-class size one, the EQC, and so on. And I think they're going to start with the EQS, which is the S-class it's basically going to be an electric S class, but, but again, it's on an entirely different platform than, than the normal S class. So this, this is a really interesting way of, of going about it. And it's, it, it's just very different than what I think makes for, for me, the, the Maserati model makes a little bit more sense, but I definitely see the value in saying we're going to create an entirely separate architecture for our electric vehicles, because I think that you can get, you, you know, you can do this skateboard, style architecture, which I think makes the electric vehicles maybe a little bit, I think you get some good dynamics out of that. You can lower the center of gravity. You can make it slightly more efficient. So I think from that perspective, it makes sense. From the negative though, you have to create an entire new architecture for your entire model lineup. I mean, they basically are creating two parallel model lineups, uh, an internal combustion one and an electric one. Yeah. So I think this is a really interesting way of, of going about it. I, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Borja? Yeah, I think there's, there's pros and cons to, to each method. Um, for, for a company as big as Mercedes, I think it does make sense that they go uh, this route. Uh, obviously, um, they're investing heavily in electric vehicles. It's clear for them to, with, with this decision that they made that they think this is the future. So being able to have a separate line for their electric vehicles does give them the ability to fully focus on each uh, sector individually without having any type of overlapping with each other, which hopefully maybe speeds up the R&D on the electric vehicles. 
also by the time that if Mercedes ever becomes a fully EV uh, or an, uh, um, an only EV manufacturer, meaning that they only sell electric vehicles, well, they already have the infrastructure already set up and they've done that for quite some time. Yeah, I think that's the gamble that that Maserati is making. They're saying it's going to, we may have an electric future, but it's far enough in the future that it's worthwhile for us to kind of take this middle road now. Whereas Mercedes-Benz yeah. is saying we're creating a parallel uh, en- uh, model lineup so that we can just get rid of our internal combustion, internal combustion lineup in the future and stick with our EV one. So I, I think that both are a gamble. It's just which yeah. risks do you want to mitigate? Yeah. Well, and it also, it's not only a gamble, but it does beg the question if Maserati decided to go the route that they did purely, purely from a financial standpoint. Because obviously, as of today, financially is a lot easier to combine both sectors and use what you already have to try to make the best out of both sectors. Um, however, in the long run is if EV turns out to be really the vehicle of the future, going the Mercedes route, it's going to be a lot more logical and you're going to be a lot more prepared as a manufacturer to be able to fulfill the needs for EVs in the future. But it does require a far greater upfront cost right now. And like you said, a gamble. So, yeah, I mean, my, my feeling is that I, at least, you know, maybe I'm a Luddite, but I feel like there's. I think it's unclear that people are going to actually, that consumers are going to actually choose electric vehicles. Now they may not have a choice the way that government regulation goes and environmental regulation. There, there may be no choice except to have electric vehicles in the future. I have a lot of trepidation that people, that consumers are going to use their money to and buy electric vehicles in the numbers that Mercedes is apparently gambling on. So we'll, we'll see how that goes, but I do think that they're both gambles. Both both ways have have downsides and positives to them. So yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, we could have said the same thing years ago about Tesla. We just didn't know if people were really going to get into into Tesla and buy Tesla. Um, and you know, as of today, they have no problem selling. Uh, yeah, those they're vehicles. all over the place. Uh, yeah. They're all over the place. Yeah, uh, but now you have someone as Mercedes Benz, which has a far superior build quality than Tesla has right now and years of experience, I mean, decades of experience in vehicle production, that if they can streamline that process, they can bring the same build quality that they have in their gas vehicles and diesel vehicles into electric vehicles uh, and bring it at a lower price point, it's going to be very attractive because now you have the point where people were maybe on the fence of buying an electric vehicle because maybe they they were afraid of the Tesla um, reliability uh, or build quality, uh, sorry, uh, and the other EVs, they just nothing really compelling about them for whatever reason. But now you have Mercedes-Benz offering you a, an electric vehicle that might be very compelling to some. So well, I, I do think that one of the interesting things, so they're, like I said, they're going to start out with the EQS, which is certainly going to be a technology packed, right. very high end vehicle. The price isn't going to be that different from a normal S class either. So I think that's going to be a really interesting choice to make. Do I spend my hundred thousand dollars on a Tesla model S on a, on a lucid? Or maybe I go the route with uh, Mercedes-Benz. Now, Mercedes-Benz has not said anything about a charging network in the United States or in Europe. 
mm-hmm. which is, you know, in, in our opinion, that's really the key for success when you're selling electric cars. But I do think that the advantage that Mercedes Benz has is basically the A class because electric vehicles make a lot of sense on the extreme ends of the scale. They make sense for very expensive vehicles because certain, certain people see a lot of value in um, environmentalism and that that's very valuable to them. And, and also an, a luxury vehicle makes a lot of sense as, as an electric as well, because it's very quiet, very refined, very easy to make very smooth. It also makes a lot of sense on the very inexpensive end of the scale because you have less maintenance. You have theoretically, although I think that in the real world, this does not bear out, but you have lower running costs. I think that it makes a lot of sense on both ends of the scale. Yes, the middle, the middle is where you kind of get into this, you know, it becomes more vague. Right. But I think that the A, the A class size, the EQA, and the EQS will both have a high level of success. Now, they've also announced yes. that they're going to they're going to for sure have at least two SUV versions. They're going to have an EQS SUV, not sure exactly on the na- naming convention there and an EQE SUV as well. No surprise there. I mean, uh, people want SUVs, so coming out with two variants uh, is just going to fulfill that uh, that hunger in the market. So, but yeah, I fully agree with you when it comes to the class A and the class S, uh, you know, class A could be used for uh, public transportation to replace an existing uh, taxi network. That's going to be a great car for that. And the class S, the thing about the the S class right now is that most people who buy S classes, well, actually they don't buy them. They, they lease them. Yeah. And they're not vehicles that, you know, as good as they are for long distance trips, most of them are not being used for long distance trips. They're used for taking the executive to the airport and taking him home and taking him to the office or taking politicians to wherever they need to go. So um, the S class makes a lot of sense to have an EV version because of the use that the current gas model S class is given. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I complete, I completely agree with that. I mean, yeah. we both lived in Washington D.C. and how many S classes do you see in Washington D.C.? I mean, they're they're all over the place because all there of are the a dime foreign, a dozen. Yeah, all of the foreign politicians come and they and they lease an S class, and yeah. I I see a majority of those leases getting moved over to the EQS. Now they've they have announced that they're going to make an electric G class, but they have, it's unclear if it's going to be an EQ model on its own distinct platform or whether it's actually going to just be an electric G class where they take a G class and they, you know, pull out the internal combustion engine and put it in electric motors. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I think also interestingly, so Mercedes Benz this week, they teased this EQE SUV, thing that had portal axles so it was it was lifted they were driving it off road and they called it the eqe squared concept it was actually really cool (laughs) i mean it was really cool i have a speculation on this which is that they're going they're going to actually make the next g class the the next uh g550 squared i think they're i think that it's actually going to be the electric version 
So it, it would make sense with how much money they are investing in going EV. So, uh, uh, however, when I first read about this, uh, that Mercedes was coming out with the, with the G class, um, electric, uh, the first thing that came to mind is, well, there's already one, uh, G wagon out there that is fully electric. Um, and, uh, it's, it belongs to, um, actor and ex-politician Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, this was about, I think I saw it three or four years ago. He came over to Jay Leno's garage to introduce his G-Wagon that he had sent over to Austria to get converted to fully electric and they had sent it uh, back to him in California. Yeah, I think no. that's an interesting, uh, so it's, it's clear that I think he spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on that conversion. And hey, I mean, maybe Mercedes-Benz sees a market there for other people to spend lots of money on electric G-Class. I don't know, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense to have, especially with the, with the squared, because it's really easy to put the portal axles. It's really easy to combine the portal axles with the electric motors as compared to an internal combustion engine. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. They, yeah. They've also said, speaking of that kind of special Mercedes model, they've also said that in the future, they're going to have electric AMG and Maybach uh, versions. I think that actually we can expect to see hybrid AMGs in the very near future, as in, I think that the next C-class AMG is actually going to be, it's going to downsize away from the V8 and have, I think probably the inline four turbo from the GLA 45, which is one of my favorite engines. It's really great. And I think it'll have that plus a hybrid setup rather than a V8. And, you know, I think with the G class, it does make sense that they do offer an electric vehicle because there's been a transition over the years of what the G class is used for. I mean, when it was first designed and created, it was a, an off-roader. It was a full-on off-roader. It was used all the time as an off-roader. Uh, militaries bought it across the world to be used as an off-road vehicle. Uh, but then there was a transition to, we're still going to give you all the off-road capabilities, but we're going to make it luxurious. And the price started going up and up and up and up. And, you know, over the last couple of gens on the G-Class, um, if you go off-roading, you don't see G-Classes. If you go to Beverly Hills, you see them everywhere. So... Well, it's primarily out of the price, right? There's a guy in my yeah, neighborhood who has it's a, a price. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a guy in my neighborhood who has a new G class, and it it looks great. I love it. I, I got to say, oh, it's, yeah, it's probably my favorite SUV. I really enjoy him. But you're not going to take something that expensive off road and risk it getting scratched, and it's just too impractical. Yeah. It's too valuable. So, you know, but what's happened too is that it's not only that it's now very expensive and only the rich can afford a G class, um, but also what, what's happened is the G class now has become a status symbol. Uh, everybody yeah. knows the G class. You see a G class and you, you, you see them driving with celebrities and on, on YouTube and the music videos. So the G class has now become a vehicle of a status symbol. So in the day and age that we live in, and I think you, you're going to agree with my next statement, um, actors and musicians, they are uh, extremely vocal about their political views and they're, they're becoming more and more vocal as far as what they stand up for. 
and having an electric G-Class, I think is going to be very compelling to a lot of those people who are current G-Class owners that says, you know what, um, I am all for the environment, I, but I love the G-Class. And if Mercedes would offer an EV G-Class, I would totally be over it. Because at the end of the day, the G-Class, as good as an SUV is, it's a, it's, it really is a gas hog. Uh, you know, it just, it drinks fuel like there's no tomorrow. And I think it's going to be very compelling for, for the current G-Class uh, buyer. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do agree with you on that. And I think another aspect of that is that the G-Class is a body on frame construction. They make them in, you know, they hand make them in very low volumes. And I think that the engineering to create a G-Class that is electric, I think is actually much less than the other vehicles. Which, yeah. is why, which is why we're speculating because, again, Mercedes has not confirmed that the electric G-Class will be an EQ model or whether it's just going to be an existing G-Class that's electrified. So yeah. my, my speculation is that that's the case, that, they're, that it's not worthwhile to re-engineer it because it's just easy to make a G-Class electrified. Which that, for better or worse, I'm going to say for worse, at least for me and I think for you too, uh, it's going to mean that if Mercedes decide that the next gen G class is only, it's going to be an EV only vehicle, the prices for the gas models will go up. Um, and we, it means that probably we won't be able to afford one ever, which is very unfortunate because I am in the same boat as you are. I think the G class is the coolest SUV there is. And if I could buy one, uh, if I had the money to buy an SUV and money is no object, I would, tomorrow would walk in into a Mercedes dealership and buy a brand new G-Class. Yeah, um, well, I think, you know, I mean, for me, the most compelling G-Class is the one that they sell in Europe only, which is the, uh, the, the diesel one. And I would actually use it off-road. So we, um, I went hunting a little bit ago uh, in, in Southern Utah. And, you know, I mean, to be frank, to get around down there, you, you need an all-wheel drive vehicle very rough terrain there's very very few paved roads out there of course where you're going hunting is out in the boondocks anyways and if i had a g-class i would actually use it for stuff like that i mean i would i would actively go off-roading and i would go you know take it hunting and doing the stuff that that i would do with it an electric vehicle in that context doesn't make any sense because if you if you get stuck without a charge or your, your charge starts to go down well i mean guess what there's, there's no option of, of getting yourself out. And with a diesel, it makes a lot more sense because you, you know, I mean, you can just strap on an extra couple gallons of diesel and, you know, next and, and you're good to go. So that's my, that's my take on it. And you're right. It, it will make those more valuable and less obtainable yeah. and, and therefore less used for off-roading. But uh, finishing up with uh, the Mercedes uh, group, uh, if, if we say, um, Maybach. As we know, Maybach has been part of the Mercedes group for some time now. And we're also expecting to see some kind of a plug-in hybrid for not only the, the Maybach, for, but the AMG. And I think for the Maybach also, it makes a lot of sense for the same reasons that we uh, just mentioned a few minutes ago about the S-Class uh, offering uh, an EV vehicle. Uh, you know, Maybach is used for the exact same purposes as the S-Class is. They're not high miles uh, vehicles. They're just used to chauffeur people around and take them to meetings and airports and things of that nature. 
Um, so I think that um, having a plug-in hybrid and possibly an EV Maybach would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it makes a lot less sense for an AMG because the AMG brand is built off of brash, loud performance vehicles. And, you know, an EV doesn't have that. You can certainly make an EV fast, but... Not loud. Engage, yeah. yeah, not loud. And engaging in the way the AMGs are, that will be a very big challenge. But for the Maybach, absolutely makes absolutely. makes perfect sense. Yep. There's a certain collection that has come up for sale, which is a particularly interesting collection for us. So it is a collection of Group B rally cars, but they're only mid-engine hatchbacks. Now, I wish there was a little bit more diversity in, in the collection, but it looks like they have two MG Metro 6R4s and three Renault 5 Turbos. And these are all actual rally cars that were raced in period. And it, they are awesome. We're going to post a link on our Facebook page so you can take a look at these for yourself. But it's rare to see an entire collection go for sale for, for anything at auction but this is really interesting because they're all real rally cars and they're all really cool group b mid-engine hatchbacks yeah it's it's rare when one of them comes for sale it's extremely rare when a collection like this uh comes out for sale and, and i have to say um i do like the mg metro um but for me it, the renault turbo is where it's always been at you know from for me, that's the epitome of, of cool. Not yeah, I, too... love, I love the Renault 5s. I mean, they're, the Renault 5 turbos are, are really, really... They look great. They sound great. They sound great, yeah. They're really interesting and quirky. Yeah. I, I got to say that the, the, the Metro 6R4 is really interesting mechanically. It has a, a, an interesting all-wheel drive system, and it has the same turbo V6 that was in the Jaguar XJ220, which is, which is interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it makes it interesting because you see about all these mechanical wonders in the, and this magnificent engine because at the end of the day, the, the V6 turbo on the XJ220 is a fantastic engine. And it's interesting that they say, let's stick it in a Metro. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> this yeah. tiny short wheelbase, you know, miniature rally. economy hatch, you know, and uh, yeah. And the Metro is, it's, it's a car that was very popular in the UK. And when you talk to people in the UK about the Metro, it's like, yeah, that's like a super low end budget hatchback. You know, if you just need a beater car to get you from point A to point B, you'd buy a Metro. Um, when so I think it's, it's I think interesting the that they put that the level. I think that the most powerful uh, um, street version of the Metro had like 90 horsepower. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Maybe 90 horsepower downhill could be, but, but I mean, yeah, with a with a stiff the, the, breeze. <laughs> yes, with a stiff breeze. Yes, and a K and N air filter. Right. Um, yeah, but but certainly the the turbo V6 from the Jag XJ220 a little bit more powerful than that. Oh yes, very much so. Yeah, but yeah, interesting collection that's coming out for sale. Indeed, yes. Okay, moving on to our next um, subject: ceramic coating for classic cars yeah i think that this is a really interesting idea this, this is stemming from an article from from haggerty and they were talking about taking certain parts from the underside of a of classic cars and and coating them with uh sarah coating now 
those who don't aren't familiar with Cerakote, it's it's a brand of ceramic coating. You 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 paint it on and then you bake it and it hardens. It's like I said, it's a ceramic coating, so you cure it. It's extremely durable. It's wear resistant. It, it you know it, it's heat resistant. It's used primarily in firearms where things do have to be heat resistant, you know, like, like military special forces, they all Cerakote their, their firearms. They have to be heat resistant because a, a barrel, for example, gets extremely hot and, and it can't, the paint can't expand with the heating barrel and crack, right? That would be, then, then it would fall off. It would, wouldn't last, but also they have to be very wear resistant and they have to be corrosion resistant so it's, they're actually really wonderful coatings. And so the idea is basically I'm going to take my, my headers or I'm going to take my frame or whatever it is. And rather than using a paint or some other type of traditional coating, I'm going to Cerakote it. And then my classic car can last longer. Yeah. You know, and with, uh, with all the EV talk that we've had in this podcast and not only here, but across the world, uh, there's going to be, guys like us that we do want to preserve these classic cars as long as possible because they are starting to become and they will become eventually uh, an extinct breed so we want to keep them around as long as possible to be able to enjoy them for as long as possible so for me this makes total sense for importing cars which is which is one of the things i do the stuff that i primarily import are classic trucks and you know, Land Rovers and Land Cruisers and whatnot. I was looking on the Land Cruiser forum and someone posted some article, some, some question. They had bought this Land Cruiser and it had rust on it and they wanted to know what to do with it. And people were giving them advice. And someone made the comment that these Land Cruisers will last forever. The only thing that will kill them is rust. Otherwise mm -hmm. they'll, they'll go hundreds, if not millions of miles. And I thought that was a really interesting comment because depending on where you live, the rust can be a really big issue. Now where you are, Borja, rust is not really a big issue. Um, and it's actually less of an issue here where I am because we don't really have, we don't have snow, so we don't get salt on the roads, but uh, you know, it is humid here. So things do rust just maybe not in the way that they do in the Northeast, but yeah, preserving vehicles is going to be a challenge, especially because older vehicles, they rust. I mean, they yeah. do, they rust. And that's what will kill them. You can always replace the engine or do mechanical work. But once the vehicle is rusted away, that's your options are limited. So, yeah, very limited. You could always fix uh, or restore a car that has mechanical problems uh, as long as parts are available and with 3d printing now that's becoming more and more easy to make sure that certain parts are available for certain cars for a very long time that becomes as as an expensive proposition as it can become it becomes a very doable and somewhat straightforward proposition but when you start dealing with uh rust um, you know, you, it's very easy to get to the point where you say, you know what, the car is simply not worth restoring just because of how far gone it's, it's, it, it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And some, and to some degree, that's less of an issue with, with certain vehicles. So these uh, FJ40s that I tend to deal with more, they, 
they have aftermarket frames and aftermarket bodies and aftermarket floors and all of this stuff. Like you can, you can basically build an entire aftermarket car, but something, but the, you know, these were produced in mass. There's a lot of these produced in the world. And so that's not a surprise that there's such a, a thriving aftermarket for them. Yeah. When you get into the Land Rovers, now classic, classic Land Rovers are typically made out of aluminum. So the body rust on those is obviously not really an issue, but the frames, the frames do rust. And the idea of having a Cerakoted frame, that's it's, you know, if you bump into a rock, it's not going to chip. If it gets hot from the engine, it's not going to degrade. It's completely unsusceptible to damage from road salt you know, I mean, the idea of this is, is really intriguing. And with the Cerakoting, especially it has a relatively low cure temperature. I think it's, it's four, it's four or 500 degrees. Uh, people who are hobbyists for firearms, they typically cure them in their, in their ovens, uh, like, like their home oven that they cook with. Obviously a, a frame you can't do that with, but my point is that it's, it's doable to cure it on something large like that. So I think this is going to be really interesting for classic cars and, and classic motorcycles in the future. Yeah. Well, Borja, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about Max Verstappen and Mercedes Benz uh, formula one. I know that you're the, you're the expert on this. So I'll, I'll pass this one over to you. Yeah. Um, I was, um, I'm a big F1 fan, uh, and just like yourself. <clears throat> and well, this last weekend uh, we had a Grand Prix, and uh, Lewis Hamilton was able to match the number of victories that Michael Schumacher has. And you know that sparked a bunch of conversation. Well, now that he's matched the number of victories, how good is he compared to Michael Schumacher? Is he better? Is he worse? Is he the same? Um, but I came across uh, an article from a uh, Spanish broadcaster uh, titled uh, part of the reason why Lewis Hamilton has had this success is actually due to Max Verstappen. And when you read that headline, you think, well, why? Like, yeah, what does Max have anything to do with? Exactly. What does Max have anything to do with the success that Lewis Hamilton has? Well, it turns out that it goes back to 2014. Um, and the reason that this, uh, that Max Verstappen is somewhat involved in this success is uh, Max uh, was um, in negotiations with Mercedes-Benz to um, join the ranks. Uh, his father, uh, Max's father, is his manager. Uh, Max was doing extremely well in Formula 2, and he wanted to make the jump and come over to Formula 1. Uh, Honestly, that's what every Formula 2 uh, driver wants to do is make the jump to F1. It's, it's uh, worth noting that Max's father was also a Formula 1 driver. He, he was, yes. And what happened here is, well, Mercedes was very interested in having Max join their team. They even made him an offer. And the offer was, hey, we're going to keep you one more year in Formula 2. We want to coach you through that year of Formula 2. And then after that year, we want you to come and join us in Mercedes. Um, why does, what does Lewis Hamilton have to do with any of this? Well, uh, internal reports 
um, say that the reason that Mercedes approached Max is because they wanted to uh, possibly get rid of Lewis Hamilton by the end of the 2015 season. Uh, even though by 2014, Lewis Hamilton won his the, the, the driver's championship with Mercedes, Mercedes as a team apparently was not very happy with his behavior outside of the track. And so they were looking to possibly replace him with a young, talented driver that would be f- more focused on purely driving and nothing outside of F1. Uh, it turns out that Max, this was not the only offer that was given to him. Uh, Red Bull also uh, approached him and said, hey, you know, we are also interested in you and we would like you to come uh, and race in F1. The difference between Mercedes and Red Bull is Mercedes said, we're going to keep you in F2 for one more year and then we're going to bring you over to F1. Red Bull's contract says we're going to bring you immediately to F1. And uh, reports say that it was Max's father who really pushed his son to sign up to Red Bull because he wanted him to be an F1 ASAP. Of course, we all know how that panned out. They turned out, uh, they turned out Mercedes, they went with Red Bull, Max came over to F1, uh, in which he's had some level of success. But it only begs the question, of course, if if this uh, would have happened, and if it would have happened as reported, well, what would have happened to Lewis Hamilton? Would he still be an F1? And if so, in which team? And uh, would Max be now a four or five time world champion as a rookie? Because um, he would have just joined F1 and potentially um, win championships right off the bat, which he hasn't been able to do with Red Bull. Well, I mean, I think, I think that the that is a really interesting hypothetical because I think that the answer is that he, he would have been at least a couple time world champion. I think, the big beneficiary of that would have been Nico Rosberg because, yeah. you know, the first couple of years, Max Verstappen was still getting his feet wet in, in formula one. He wasn't quite as competitive as he is now, which I think, I think it's easy to say that he's the best driver in formula one this year. I agree. I don't know that in 2016, you could have said that, right. That, that being said, Mercedes for the first couple of years of the V6 hybrid era, which we're talking about right at the beginning, you know, this era is what we're talking about. This time frame is right at the beginning of this V6 hybrid era. Mercedes, Mercedes Benz won every single race. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, what, and except for one race the first year, I mean, they were completely dominant. I think any one of the Formula One drivers in that car would have been able to win the championship that year. So I think I think Nico Rosberg would have would have probably walked away as a multiple world champion, and then and then Max would have developed and and have beaten him. You know, and and it just comes to show that, um, especially in F one, uh, not only timing is crucial, and of course talent is crucial, but there's an enormous amount of luck that you have to have to make sure that you land at the right team at the right time with the right people. Yeah, um, because um, you know if if this rumor is correct and and from what I've read and from what I've seen, it seems to be a legitimate offer that Mercedes did make to Max Verstappen back in 2014. And if he would have taken this offer, that Lewis Hamilton would not be in Mercedes, mm-hmm. and he would not have the championships that he has right now. 
and the victories that he has right now. So not only the move that he made of leaving McLaren to go to Mercedes was the right move for him at the time, even though at the time nobody would have uh, bet any money that that was the right move. Because, of course, back then when, when Hamilton left McLaren, McLaren was a stronger team than Mercedes was. So he took that gamble and that panned out. It also panned out that Verstappen did not take the contract from Mercedes to push him out of the team. So, yeah, just comes to show what I just you know said. It just takes an incredible amount of luck and everything just seems – the timing has to be perfect to be able to achieve what Hamilton has been able to achieve. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that either one of us are saying in case we have any English listeners out there who are going to be really mad at us for saying anything negative about Lewis Hamilton. I don't, I don't think either one of us are saying that Lewis Hamilton doesn't have the skill or that he somehow doesn't deserve the championships that he, that he has earned. I think that we're just saying that there there is luck involved. And if he had yeah. been at a different team, he wouldn't have had the same success. Right. Someone else would have had it, I think. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the same way. I mean, and like you said, for those, well, not only English listeners, but Hamilton Uber fans, it's the same way why Vettel won the championships with Red Bull and Hamilton didn't. You know, right. Vettel had a better car than Hamilton did. And that's why Vettel won and Hamilton did. And, now Hamilton has a better car and that's why uh, he's winning. So, yeah. Before we get to the rest of the show, take a moment to subscribe. If you enjoy our insights and want to help keep our lights on, you can visit our businesses. Borja runs a full service auto repair shop in Orem, Utah. You can find him on Facebook at Auto Pros Utah. And trust me, he really can't fix anything. I import cars from South America and Europe, primarily classic trucks like FJ40s and Land Rovers, but I can help you source any classic car in any condition that you want, from cars that were never sold in the US to trucks that are just cheaper with less rust overseas. Visit me at DaveTheCarImporter.com. There's no reason for you to not have the car of your dreams, even if it is forbidden fruit. Speaking Speaking of Ferrari, Yes. I would like to talk a little bit about the Ferrari SF90. So I guess the first question is, is what is the SF90? Ferrari's model lineup has gotten so, uh, so busy lately. I'm not even sure what all of their cars are, but the SF90 is their, their current top tier vehicle. It's not a limited production car like Ferrari's usual top tier is. It's a, you know, if you order one, they'll make it for you. They'll, they'll sell as many as they, they'll, they'll make as many as they can sell, I should say. But it's basically a, a mid-engined twin turbo V8 with a hybrid assist. And it's, uh, it's very fast. They made it to be very, very, very fast. Um, they're pretty expensive, I might, I might say, as far as cars go although it is also a good deal in some ways because it's quicker than a la ferrari but it's one third the price so there is that so what i want to talk about is um chris harris as well as road and track have uh, released some reviews of their drives of the sf90 so do you want to kick us off and let us know what they thought about it yeah uh they 
both agreed that this car was on a new level of fast, uh, mind-bendedly fast. I mean, just to give out some numbers to our listeners, as you said, it's a four-liter four-liter twin-turbo V8 with a hybrid. It comes out to 986 brake horsepower combined. So definitely no slouch uh, there. Um, fastest ever Top Gear test track by 1.4 seconds. Yeah, which is a huge margin uh, and for, for a small track. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, you, you said that this is, could, could be the Ferrari's top of the line. It's hard to think in the day and age that we live in that Ferrari's top dog is a V8 instead of a V12. And uh, it costs $625,000 MSRP before options. Because um, usually the top dog Ferrari has always, at least with LaFerrari and the Enso, has always hovered around the million dollar uh, price tag and then of course once it goes out of production price goes up um, but this one is as you said in some ways a bargain because it, it's um, about three hundred thousand dollars less than what the LaFerrari was brand new a little more than that um, it's it's a v8 it's faster um, and everybody Chris Harris and uh, said it's mind-bogglingly fast but uh, it's interesting that both of them stated that it's not a car that they would buy um, yeah, and, and if I may, it's interesting because um, if, if for those who know Chris Harris from Top Gear, he does great in Top Gear. But if uh, if you want to see the true Chris Harris and really take it into the next level, you got to go to his YouTube channel and watch the videos that he published four or five years ago before he was involved with uh, Top Gear. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because now that you say that he goes to the Ferrari dealer to get his Ferrari service and they, he gets a 488, it wasn't that long ago that Ferrari wasn't giving him any cars because at one point he wasn't the nicest about uh, talking and reporting about a specific Ferrari. So after that, Ferrari stopped sending him press cars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and now fast forward five, six years later, uh, now not only are they giving him press cars and inviting him to Italy to come and review the cars, but they're giving him a 488 as a loaner car. Yeah. So, well, oh, and so times have changed. Right. And and, and the 488 is not famous for being Ferrari's finest driver's car. I mean, it, it is kind of the introduction of some technologies that really reduce driver involvement. And Ferrari being Ferrari, they try to minimize that and maximize your driver involvement. But there's just no way around, you know, the electric power steering and, the, you know, the turbos being not as involving as a naturally aspirated engine, et cetera. But he got back from driving the SF90 and immediately goes and drives the 488. So he gets this kind of back-to-back -back comparison. And he says, uh, comparison. Now, Road and Track didn't have that back-to-back -back comparison. But what their review said was, in essence, the same thing. It's mind-bendingly fast. It's just not emotionally involving to the level that you would expect any Ferrari to be, let alone the top-tier Ferrari. I think, I think another couple of interesting things from Chris Harris is he's, he's said in the past that manufacturers are going down what's basically a rabbit hole of performance. And the 488 was so much more involving. It feels almost as fast in the real world. You know, driving on public roads, it feels just as fast. And it's just immensely more involving and more emotional than this SF90, which is, I think, I think that's a really telling I have a lot to say about this myself, but basically manufacturers are pursuing the numbers of performance at the expense of driver involvement. 
and this means in a lot of in a lot of cases this means heavier cars that have immense power and are very technologically advanced but they're just not as involving and what what he said was after driving the SF90 he says I admire it it is it's an achievement it is a amazing machine but I don't lust after it I don't want to own it I don't need to go back and drive it more that that was that was I think really telling yeah you know and especially when it comes to to ferrari they've always they have a lot of pride saying you know our cars are filled with passion and soul and that's part of the reason why you buy a ferrari because when you drive it you feel that passion you feel that soul um you hear it uh with the engine note and if that's what's missing out of this uh ferrari then i don't think still ferrari's going to have a problem selling them because there's, you know, two sides to every coin and there's people who buy Ferraris because they admire the brand and they love the cars that they produce. And then the, the other type of people, which unfortunately nowadays I would say is the bigger group that buys Ferraris. It's just a status symbol for them. Um, so I don't think Ferrari will have problem selling this car. I just think that they will lose some of the market from the really true enthusiasts that are looking for that passion and soul that both Chris Harris and Roden Track have now um, expressed that the car is simply lacking. And it does beg the question, when is too much too much? Well, right. I mean, there's, there's certainly a case to be made for the philosophy that faster is just always better. I don't know that I subscribe to that philosophy myself. I, I think driving a Miata, a Miata, for example, is extremely enjoyable and it's, it's not fast. But what, what Chris Harris ended up saying was, he said, if I were to pick, if I were to go and tell Ferrari, make this car for me, this is what I want. He said, basically, I want something with 500 horsepower, you know, 2,100 pounds or so, so lightweight, a manual gearbox, and I would like a hybrid, but I don't want it to be reliant on the electric power. I want it to just have enough that I can kind of get around town. I mean, in, in Europe, of course, a lot of the small cities have said you, you can't drive through the city on internal combustion. You have to use electric power somehow. So, you know, it would be nice to be able, he said, to go through the city or to start my car up in the morning without waking up my neighbors. So a hybrid would be nice. And I want a trunk. And he's like, well, guess what? The Ferrari SF90 has none of those things. And I think that that's a really interesting perspective, right? I mean, kind of the maximal performance that you can use on the street is around that 500 horsepower, 2000 pound. And anything beyond that is maybe too much. I, I kind of hesitate to say that because technology finds a way to make these things more and more usable. Yeah, I think I think that's true also with um, with super bikes. You know, I mean, super bikes nowadays have, you know, they weigh four hundred and fifty pounds or four hundred pounds, and they have two hundred horsepower, and and you can't ride the things without electronic rider aids. You can't do it. But the electronic rider aids actually work really well, and and so they do. They continue to make them and sell them, and people ride them. Basically, what. Um just came to mind what Chris Harris described as his ideal car from Ferrari. He says, I want <clears throat> this much horsepower, this weight, this assistance, a trunk, a manual gearbox, and 
Gordon Murray must have heard this and said, hold my beer, I'll be right back. <laughs> right. Because this that's is, exactly what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, in, in essence, is what Gordon Murray is, in essence, building what most car enthusiasts want out of a car nowadays. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, wonder, I wonder if there really is this disconnect between rich people who have money to buy these things and what car enthusiasts want. Or whether the people who buy them just kind of go along because that's what's available. I, I really do wonder if there is a disconnect because I have a hard time imagining that, that all of the people who are spending lots of money on expensive cars aren't actual enthusiasts who want this formula because I, I feel like it's pretty universal. This is what people who really care about driving want to see but so few, if any, manufacturers are, are making it. You know, it's, it's what, we've, what we've talked about. I mean, there's, there's two groups in that category when it comes to people who can afford these types of cars. They are the true car enthusiasts and they're the ones who have money and they just see the car as uh, not only a, a mode of transportation, but majority as a status symbol. And so they don't care if the car doesn't have that passion and soul. All they care is that it has Ferrari, that it looks striking, that people think it's expensive. And when people look at them, uh, that guy's got money. Uh, well, I think, I think um, you know, let's try to refine that thought a little bit more because I think that a lot of the people who are like, okay, I, you know, I don't actually care about cars. I just, you know, I need a status, I need a status symbol and I'm going to go buy something that's expensive. I think they actually lease. So I think, I think that they're leasing like a, you know, Ferrari F8, right? I think that's what they do. I think that the people who are buying an SF90, because you can't lease an SF90. This is, this is a buy, this is a buy or nothing proposition. And I don't know that those people are saying, you know, that I need a status symbol to the same degree. I, although maybe Ferrari buyers are a little bit different in that, you kind of have these investor buyers. These, mm -hmm. these, are usually, these are the type of people who buy the top end Ferraris, the law Ferrari, the Enzo and et cetera. And then you have, you know, kind of the lower tier buyers. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Basically right now, I think it's an unknown. It's an, we, we don't have an answer, but I think that um, after a few years, that the SF90 has been on sale for a few years and we can compare the production numbers versus the 458 and 488 and see how they compare. We'll be able to see better what kind of buyer goes for the SF90. Granted that um, right off the bat, I'm not expecting the SF90 to sell as many as 488s and 458s from a pricing standpoint uh, yeah. because it's just much more expensive than the 488 and the 458 ever was. So just because of that, uh, I think a lot of people will just uh, not buy it. But yeah, I mean, we'll be able to see how, how well it sells. I'm actually probably the, the YouTuber that I'm looking the most to see review this car is Harry uh, from Harry's Garage. Yep. Um, I, I think uh, his, his knowledge and expertise and um, the ability that he's had to be able to pretty much drive almost every Ferrari there is out there <clears throat> from classic Ferraris to modern era Ferraris, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it'll give him an edge, a competitive edge on giving an honest review on how he feels about the car. So not that I don't 
I value Chris Harris and Roden Track's opinion because I do, especially Chris Harris. I really enjoy his uh, reviews, but I'm really looking forward to what uh, Mr. Harry has to say about uh, this vehicle. I just, I just, I just hope that manufacturers get the hint and start thinking about their basic <laughs> formula more than they have been. We are going to get into our part two of the super SUV series. We've been talking about these performance SUVs, what they are, what they mean. And I wanna start off, since we've had our last discussion, I had a really interesting thought. I, I ran it over, talked with my wife about it, and I feel like, well, when we ended last week's podcast, we were talking about does it make sense to have a performance SUV? And last week I was thinking, no, it doesn't make any sense. These things are too heavy. You know, they, they're just not going to drive in a, in a dynamic way because no matter what, you can't defeat the laws of physics. They're just too big and too heavy to be enjoyable. I've, I've revisited that idea and I have a different thought on it. And I think that they actually make an immense amount of sense. Like I think that maybe they make the most sense for performance vehicles. And the reason that I think that is because they make performance accessible. Now, usually when you hear that, what, what people mean when they say that a vehicle is accessible or it's accessible performance or whatever is they mean price tag. We hear this a lot with hot hatches when people are talking mm -hmm. about a, a Subaru WRX. You hear frequently that a Subaru WRX on back roads is as fast as a supercar in the real world. And it's accessible because it's inexpensive. Now, I think that these super SUVs make sense because they're making performance accessible, not because they're inexpensive, right? I'm not talking about price because most of these are very expensive or, or at least expensive relative to other SUVs that are available or even other performance cars. What I mean by accessible is you have this SUV, you daily drive it and the performance is right there at the tip of your fingers whenever you want it. I think that this is kind of the same idea as muscle cars, as hot hatchbacks and as these the super sedan genre that we had with these, these German sedans, you know, kind of starting in the early nineties and continuing on to today with like the M5, for example, or E63 AMGs, meaning that like, like a hot hatchback is, is, is maybe the perfect example. I'm going to focus in on that for a second, because if you were in the eighties or nineties and, or even today, and you buy a hot hatchback and you're in Europe, you need to have a hatchback because it, it fits European roads. You can go to any city and yet when you get into a nice road, it handles really well. It's fast enough to be fun. And it's something that's always there with you and it's always accessible. So that driving experience is always accessible. And I think that these fast SUVs have that same idea. You're driving your kids to school and you got a twisty road, bam you have that performance accessible to you right then, right there. Um, you're going to the grocery store, you're going on a road trip and you find a nice road. That performance is there and it's accessible. It's kind of, um, 
was kind of the same idea. Have you ever heard the saying um, that the best camera is the one that you have with you? Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I'm going to make this comparison between, you know, these super SUVs are basically like an iPhone camera. Yeah. Right. They're not a, a digital SLR, right? An iPhone camera, they're getting better every year. Technology, they, they put a lot of technology into the image processing and et cetera to make them actually pretty good cameras. And you can do a lot of stuff with them. The big benefit of an iPhone camera is that you always have it with you. A, di- yeah. a digital SLR camera, it's better in every single way. But how often do you go around carrying a digital SLR? I, I mean, you don't. Right. And in the same way, these performance SUVs are like the iPhone camera. It's good enough to enjoy, but you always have it with you. And if you really want the best pictures, you're going to go and, and bring your digital SLR. And likewise, if you really want to enjoy the best roads and you're going to purposefully go out and to enjoy a road or a racetrack, yeah, you'll, you'll go get a sports car but you don't have the sports car with you every day. And so from that perspective, these performance SUVs really do make a lot of sense. Another thing that it adds uh, exactly along the lines of what you were saying, it, it adds another layer of flavor to the recipe. You know, right now you have a huge demand for people wanting to buy SUVs and crossovers. Um, and you know, what's one way that you can make sure that the crossover or SUV that you buy is different from most people who drive SUVs and crossovers? Well, you get the, the sport version of it, the super SUV, uh, which not only makes you different from everybody else, but it gives you this added layer of flavor that you just didn't have with the base model SUV. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I do think that um, for some people, uh, it does make sense. Um it also, for me, in order for it to make sense, it also has to come down to pricing, which we'll be discussing this for some of the models that we'll be talking about. But I think that some of those super SUVs, the pricing is just really too much. Yeah. Uh, well, what, well, what do you, just, just to back up for a second, I mean, what do you think about my, my theory on that? Okay. Because, I mean, ultimately, you can make the same argument and say, look, well, you can say the exact same thing about a, a, a fast wagon. So, I don't know. Yeah, do you- but, but, you know, the, 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 I, I agree with, with your opinion. I fully agree. But the thing with the fast wagon is usually they're not as expensive as some of these super SUVs. Mm. Uh, even the most expensive fast wagons, uh, some of them, uh, you know, uh, the, R, the new RS6, for example, the, even though it's an expensive car, it doesn't come anywhere near as to the price of these, some of these super SUVs. And what I mean in the super SUVs, we're talking about the Rolls Royce and the Bentley Bentayga. Um, yeah. It's about the same as the RSQ8 though. Yeah. It's about the same uh, about, and I think that probably somewhere around that pricing and the RSQ8, we're talking about anywhere close to 115,000, somewhere around that neighborhood. Yeah. I think that's probably, uh, where the pricing should be anything above that uh, for me with the exception of the g-wagon um, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense um, i would rather have a couple of different vehicles for the same price that i can buy a bentega or a lamborghini urus or um, uh, a rolls royce um, 
but for an 115,000, I mean, if you think about it, 115, 100,000, even 100 grand, if you were to say 100 grand, you know, you can get two very decent vehicles for 50,000 each um, and have $100,000 on, on those two vehicles, or you can get an RS6, or you can get an RSQ8, uh, which will basically try to take the best of each and combine it and give you that recipe. Um, and I think for that price, it makes sense. Above yeah, that, it's it's for me. It's hard to to make a compelling case for something that buys that the cost that much. Yeah, that's actually a really really interesting point because the reason that my whole accessibility argument depends on it being the vehicle that you have with you. But but the simple mm-hmm. fact is is that if you have, you know, I mean, look, okay, so let's let's take an example: an Aston Martin DBX. Okay, an Aston Martin DBX is going to cost you two hundred thousand dollars. And it's perfectly capable of being exactly what I was saying, the car that you drive every day that is uh, very enjoyable to drive and offers a lot of what someone who's spending a lot of money on their vehicle demands, meaning that it's, it has prestige, it has uh, you know, a wow factor to it, it has the brand, it has the performance, it has, you know, it has everything, right? So the whole idea is that it's a little bit of everything that it fulfills all of your needs. But at that mm-hmm. price point, I mean, you can spend, you know, you can have a whole garage full of cars and each one of them designed for a specific purpose to fulfill all of those things. And all of them will do each individual task better. So, yeah, so I guess maybe maybe you're right that that around $100,000, it makes more sense. You get it much above that and it's, and it's, and it takes yeah. more sense to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, have something to fulfill each need. Right. I guess the only counter argument to that would be garage space. If you, if you live somewhere with a, if you have to live somewhere and your real estate market only allows you to have one or two car garage, maybe it doesn't matter how much the vehicles cost you. You can only have two cars. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's going to be the rare exception. Um, you know, even with the Aston Martin DBX, it costs around 190 you know, that's before options. Uh, once you start adding options, you can easily go over 200000 on the DBX. And, you know, if you're going to be spending $200,000, well, you can get two very nice $100,000 vehicles um, with options, you know, that will fulfill those those needs individually better. So, yeah, I think that around the 100,000, 115,000 is the sweet spot to say, okay, if I can find a car that does everything I want relatively good for that price range, I think it, and it's hard for me to say this, that $115,000 car is good value for money. Um, But it seemed when we're talking about super SUVs, it seems to be that for me around that price range, it's good value for money. Above that, I have a hard time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it makes it was, sense in the from the perspective of let's say a BMW X5M. If it's replacing an M5 and an X6, you know, I mean, hey, that's that's good value. Yes, it's good value. Yes. Yep. Or you know, or same thing with the Audi. You know, if if I'm going to have an an S6 or an S8 uh, or an S4 or an RS4, and I'm also going to have a Q7. Uh, or a Q8, well, the RSQ8 does make sense if you're just looking to, for one car to, to do everything that you want. Hmm. Um. That's it for this week's Limited Slip Podcast. 
Remember to subscribe so you don't miss our insights into next week's automotive news. If you want to help us keep the content coming, leave a five-star review and visit our businesses at DaveTheCarImporter.com where I help clients import their dream cars from South America and Europe for a flat fee or Borja's business on Facebook at AutoPros Utah, a full-service auto repair shop. This is David and Borja on this week's Limited Slip Podcast.